going to take a little break from John for, uh, well, this Sunday and next Sunday, certainly, um, because of Easter. And we're going to follow Mark's account of Easter. Uh, we're going to look at uh, Mark chapter 11, verses 1 to 11 today, but then just journey with Mark through, uh, through this week. And then next Sunday, we'll just draw on all the Gospels because the whole story uh, comes to us in all uh, four gospel writers of the resurrection. So today, we're with Mark chapter 11, verses 1 to 11. And if you need a Bible, if you want to have a paper Bible open, there's, there's Bibles on the tables down here. Just come forward and help yourself. It's fine. Uh, and otherwise, the words will be on the screen. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing, untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Amen. May God bless his word to us. I came in on uh, the train this morning, and uh, there was a guy with a Celtic scarf hanging out his pocket on the train in front of me. And then by the time I got into Central Station, um, then the uh, numbers of uh, football strips were increasingly, or, or football supporters' scarves, increasingly in evidence. Apparently, Aberdeen are playing Celtic in a semi-final at Hamden today. I had to check my facts. I didn't know that. I'm not a big football fan personally, but there you go. But the signs were there to be seen that there was something on. I heard earlier on uh, when we were getting ready some kind of tribal chanting in the streets uh, on the way uh, through the city center. And so every now and then in uh, cities, there are those moments when I walk through Central Station, they have got rows and rows and rows and rows of uh, barriered fencing over at one side near the ticket machines. So I'm assuming that's because they're uh, expecting large numbers of returning fans. I'm not quite sure. Or whether there's something else on. Generally in cities, you pick up the vibe if there's something on. Uh, on Friday, I was on a train uh, from Gurick back into Glasgow City Centre around about tea time. Um, six o'clock maybe. And uh, as we stopped in uh, Greenock West and then Greenock Central and then came through uh, Port Glasgow and all the stations in between, uh, an increasing succession of 
14 to 16-year-olds got on, and clearly there was a memo that had gone round about what the, what, the, what the outfit was to be, because all the guys were wearing, they seemed to be all wearing black shorts, and uh, either a hoodie or a sports top, not quite sure, uh, and the girls were mega done up. Uh, short skirts, huge eyelashes, big hair, full-on makeup, the whole thing. And I just thought this was your average Friday night. Um, and every station that we stopped in, more and more of these kind of teenagers got on. Um, and I thought it was a little bit kind of, it was a bit unusual. Uh, anyway, got back to Glasgow and then later on happened to be driving south side and drove past the, uh, the uh, what's it called, the O2 on the south side? The O2 Academy. Uh, and Dave was playing. Someone help me out here. What is Dave? Who is Dave? Anybody know? Anybody? Nobody knows? Sorry? It's a rapper. Thank you, Stephen. Because I was none, I was going to Google and everything. And I'm like, oh, okay, right. Well, that would explain everything. He's a Christian. Oh, Stormzy, aye. It's Dave. He just did not look like Christian outfits, I'm telling you. This was not a discipleship course. I'm pretty sure of that. So when I drove past the O2 Academy on the south side, there was a massive queue of more and more and more of the same kids. It was like they were all part of the same family because they were all wearing the same clothes. When you come into a city and there's an event on, uh, generally, uh, you, can, you can sense the mood. You could sense the mood in 2014 when the Commonwealth Games were on. It was buoyant, dynamic, electric, exciting. Uh, you could sense the mood after the independence uh, referendum in George Square, which was hostile and potentially tense. You can sense the mood when there's an old firm game on. You can sense the mood in cities uh, when the Christmas lights go on and there's families and kids with flashing lights on their heads and stuff like that. You can sense the mood in a city. And in Jerusalem, of course, being a city, which was a city, a pilgrimage destiny, uh, or destination, I should say, a pilgrimage destination for Jewish people, both within Israel and all the kind of international Jews who, had, who lived and grew up in other countries, but uh, it was the thing to do that you made a pilgrimage. And so Passover every year was pilgrimage time. Uh, there were three pilgrimage festivals, Passover, Pentecost, uh, several weeks later, and then Tabernacles. We thought about Tabernacles last weekend. So this is now Passover. We're probably about, I think, six months later on from where we were last week. Uh, but don't quote me on that. I'll need to double check in case it's a year and a half in John's cycle. Uh, John cycles things differently from the other gospel writers. And so Jesus, who had been to Jerusalem on many an occasion before, and had just come in probably from that route, he was coming from Galilee, so the chances are he would come in uh, through Bethphage and Bethany. Anyway, that's as far as we know where he used to hang out. That's where his pals lived, Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. And so Jesus, who had no house of his own, stayed with friends, same as you stay with friends if you can get a cheap bed night. If you know somebody, then you'll stay with friends, right? Yeah, that's how my daughter happened to be married to my son-in-law, because he came a-traveling, and uh, we uh, put him up um, in, in, uh, because he was looking for bed nights and somewhere to stay in Glasgow and so on. Anyway, you stay with friends. And so Jesus would have gone in and out of Jerusalem countless times before. 
Jesus with his disciples, Jesus on his own. It was a well-beaten path, the road from Bethany and Bethphage. Uh, and if you ever do or have done a Holy Land tour, I was able to do one in 1996. And the first place the tour bus takes you to uh, in Jerusalem is this spot, more or less, uh, at the top of the Mount of Olives, because you can look over and you get that classic view of Jerusalem, the walled city of Jerusalem, if you've ever seen that, where you're looking right across and you see the whole of the walled city just on the other side, probably from here to George Square. But this time, it was different. This time, it was a special occasion. This time, it was a different kind of entrance. There was no need to go into Jerusalem on a donkey. The distance from Bethany into Jerusalem was short, a couple of miles. And given that everybody walked on foot and that a journey from uh, Jerusalem to Galilee would take you about a week, is about 70, 80 miles, people thought nothing of walking. It's just how you got around. And yet Jesus made these arrangements in an emphatically different way to come in to Jerusalem. He made preparations for what he was about to do next. This is not a spur-of-the-moment thing. This is not just a wee impromptu idea. Jesus, in Mark's gospel, has been telling his disciples, although their ears were kind of deaf, that this was the next thing. You know, God is a God who prepares in advance. He knows what's coming next, and He knows what He's going to do. And so, just in the same way, in the same way that God knows what He's going to do or knew what He was going to do then, He still knows what He is going to do. You know, sometimes we can imagine that our lives are, are slipping out of control or that God does not have a handle on the world or its affairs or that there's something that He hasn't thought of. There is never something that God hasn't thought of or seen. And so in those moments when you and I feel caught off guard and feel unprepared for eventualities, it's a massive, or it ought to be a massive encouragement to know that God is never wrong-footed. God is never wrong-footed. There's never a time when He doesn't know what's coming, and there's never a time when He doesn't know what He's going to do about it. And so whatever unforeseen events happen in your lives or in the lives of other people, we can take comfort and refuge in the knowledge that God's already ahead of you, and He's already ahead of that person, and He is not uh, caught on the hop. And so we have this uh, explanation of the, 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 the removing of the donkey. There's actually quite an interesting amount of detail here. Uh, you know, it would be one thing to imagine is, was, was Jesus just uh, nicking the colt, <laughs> borrowing the colt? Or was there some prior arrangement? I think, frankly, if Jesus was so well known in Bethany and Bethphage and the surrounding area as He would have been having stayed there, then I think it's fairly safe to say that Jesus knew the person who owned the colt. It might even have been Lazarus and Mary and Martha's colt. Who knows? It might have belonged to people that we know of. 
and in good community neighborhood watch style to locals who live in the village, see a couple of random disciples that they don't know are disciples because they're, they're not wearing, you know, tabards that say disciple of Jesus. They're just random people untying a donkey. And if you saw somebody, uh, you know, if you saw somebody uh, like, you know, take it, if you saw somebody with a small hacksaw and a chain on a bicycle, you might want to stop and say, eh, what are you doing? <laughs> So in the same way, they saw somebody untying a coat, which was a valuable animal, animal, and they stopped and asked. And Jesus had told them in advance that the Lord needs it and will send it back shortly. I sometimes wonder about that coat. This is just a, you know, a slight, a slight uh, sidestep uh, side here, but this coat had never been ridden before. I suspect this colt had never been separated from its mother before. I suspect that this colt uh, had no, uh, you know, great experience of uh, going into Jerusalem before. David was telling us about the donkeys at Scarborough, who, when they were untied, automatically knew that the routine was to go from where they were kept down to the beach at Scarborough, because that was the routine. This colt, this baby donkey, by contrast, had never been out of Bethany, had never been away from its mother, and had never been to Jerusalem. Now, animals, especially baby animals, can be uh, quite uh, timid or can be quite delicate. And yet, here is this baby donkey who is um, suddenly finds itself covered in cloaks, suddenly finds itself with Jesus, somebody, a man, sitting on its back. And then there's all of this noise and hysteria round about it. You know, there are uh, horses used to, I think they still, they, they, they wear blinkers, don't they? Even trained horses wear blinkers so that if they are going to, uh, if they're police horses riding into the crowds, they're not going to be frightened or distracted or thrown by noise and chaos and all the other things that are going on. They only can see what's going on in front of them. And so here is this colt who's, uh, if you like, suddenly surrounded by noise and confusion with Jesus on its back. And I suppose all that to say that actually maybe it's just a little image of something. I was just thinking about this, this poor wee baby donkey who'd never been away from its mammy before, suddenly with Jesus on its back. And suddenly, in the midst of all of this noise and chaos, going somewhere where it had never been before, and thinking, actually, there's a little picture of an invitation to discipleship. There's a little picture of what it is that Jesus calls us to. He calls us, as it were, relatively speaking, childlike, to go where He takes us and where He sends us. There's no record of the cult bolting. There's no record of the cult being distressed. Jesus rode a little donkey into Jerusalem. I don't know that we need to attach too much significance to how the colt was feeling or its behavior. The significance, of course, of the colt, as we know, comes from Zechariah. So Jesus made preparation for what He was about to do. And Jesus is still making preparation for what He is about to do in Glasgow, 
in the lives of His people, in the life of His church. Jesus knows what's coming next. And so, Jesus going into Jerusalem then on a donkey, as uh, sweet and appealing an image as that is, was actually much more about prophetic declaration. Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9 says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Riding on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He comes, a king, righteous, victorious, riding on a colt. And that's the critical image there. A king and a baby donkey. A king, victorious, coming into a situation where, in human terms, he's going to be defeated. Where, in human terms, he is going to be uh, put to death on a cross. And it would only be those who believed and had believed and put their faith in him that would get to see the next part. Next Sunday, when we read the accounts of Jesus' resurrection, we will read accounts of Jesus meeting the people that already believed in him. We will not read any accounts of Jesus standing on the steps of the temple courts, of Jesus going to Pilate, of Jesus going to Annas or Caiaphas, of Jesus going to any of the soldiers who beat him up. We will not read accounts of Jesus going to any of them and saying, ta-da, or so what, or what you're going to do now. And so in the eyes of all of these people, Jesus would not be victorious. And yet, we know that he was. Victory doesn't always look or feel in the moment like victory. And sometimes in our lives, we may imagine, or we we know and we believe that we belong to Jesus and that we are, if you like, to use an old-fashioned saying, on the victory side. And yet, sometimes it doesn't look like that or feel like that. Sometimes it can look and feel beleaguered as Jesus' treatment and death looked like he was defeated and not victorious. But this cult, Jesus choosing to come in on this cult, was an emphatic prophetic declaration, a fulfillment of what God had said. What was he declaring prophetically? First of all, he was declaring his righteousness. Your king comes to you righteous and victorious. And so, Jesus was declaring and daring to fulfill those words from Zechariah. He was declaring to all who would look and see his conviction that he was a righteous king. Not boastfully, not proudly, but because he simply was and is the righteous one. You and I would not have been qualified to sit on that donkey, but Jesus was and is. And so, the king came in righteousness. 
without having sinned or failed or fallen short in any way. Your King comes righteous and victorious. And although the victory in human terms didn't look like it was happening, it actually did happen. And finally, his humility, his righteousness, his victory, his humility. Because Jesus came in to uh, declare himself to be God's kind of king. Jesus came in to declare himself the fulfillment of what God had promised to do, and he came in in humility a baby donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey, a symbol not of war, but of peace. I love this fusion, this fusion of ideas and images, that on the one hand, Jesus was coming in humility. He was coming as a sign of humility. But He was also coming in His humility to dare to say to anyone who could see and understand what he was doing, that he was the fulfillment, that he was the fulfillment of what God had said would happen and would promise and had promised. Your life, as you go about your business, whatever it is that you're doing through the week and in from day to day, your life equally is called and sent by Jesus to be a prophetic declaration. What does that mean? Unpack that. It means that in all the places that you go, in a world that loves to believe that science is tops and human reason is conquered, where we've no need for God, in a world that wants to say that God is dead and we are the masters of all that we survey, your life lived for God and before God with the fragrance of Jesus and the righteousness of Jesus and the peace of Jesus and the truth of Jesus and the fruitfulness of His Spirit and all the things that flow from you, whether you're aware of them or not, and they do because you belong to Jesus are a prophetic declaration of the risen Jesus. You know, you have your testimony, you have your story that Jesus has come in and changed your life, and people can tell that there's something different about you. I had a, spent some time with a, a friend the other day who was describing to me how he likes to go fishing with a, another friend, a guy he's known since he was at school. And this uh, guy is not a Christian. My friend Alfie is. And Alfie was describing how uh, he's gone, uh, he goes fishing with this guy and some other guys, and, and his friend will regularly take a rise out of him for being a Christian. I mean, it's not malicious or anything, but it's just, it's banter, and he, you know, every time they're not catching anything, he says, I where's your God now, and all this stuff. Except when he got the, Alfie got the phone call from his friend to say that his friend's wife was critically ill and had been told she only had hours to live, and he said, will you pray? And so the guy who mocked and 
laughed and didn't think this was anything serious, needed the only person that he knew who was a Christian to pray. And because Alfie had and has enough integrity as a man of God and just drips with the love of Jesus, he's just the most delightful man. The, the fragrance of Jesus is rich with this one. <laughs> and because of that, his friend, despite all his mocking of God and the gospel and so on, as gentle as it was, in a moment of need, recognized a man of God. And so all the time, Alfie's life had been a prophetic declaration of the power and the truth and the transformation of God because Alfie's life has been seriously transformed. And it's not breaking, uh, you know, any confidences, any secrets to say that Alfie is a recovered addict and someone whose life was far from uh, being about the fragrance of Jesus years ago. And Alfie's transformation is a powerful testimony to the grace of God. And when you've known somebody who has been an addict and then you suddenly see someone who's clean and together and radiating joy and love, you can't argue with that. <laughs> now, you don't need to have an extreme testimony in order to radiate the love of God or to be a sign, a prophetic declaration. Just know that if Jesus is in you, your life is a prophetic declaration where you go of the power of the risen Christ. And people will love you or hate you. They'll be curious, they'll be attracted, or they'll be repelled. But Jesus made a specific prophetic declaration. His declaration was a fulfillment of a word in Zechariah's prophecy. But nonetheless, when he came into Jerusalem, it was a fusion of the meekness of a triumphant king, God's triumphant king. But at the same time, it was a powerful proclamation. It was a powerful proclamation. I want to think a little bit about the activity of the disciples, because Jesus was making this prophetic declaration of who He was. And any good Jew who knew their Scriptures would know that part of the coming of the Messiah was the Messiah coming into Jerusalem. And there's a very real sense that here is God coming into the center of the place where He established His name. Jerusalem was the city where God established the temple. And the temple was to be the place where within, and the Holy of Holies in the center of the temple, where only the chief priest could go in once a year. That was God's dwelling place. And yet... The temple had been overrun by priests and Sadducees, by people making a buck in the, in, the, in the temple courts, a little markup on the doves, a little markup on the money changing, a little markup on the lambs for sale. The priesthood was, was often corrupt and self-interested. They were trying to murder Jesus. They bought uh, his whereabouts for 30 pieces of silver. It was hardly a pure and holy institution. And the place where God was supposed to be at the center, He had been shoved out, and people had taken His place. And often that is the case. God is shoved out so that we can have the place. And so these disciples, and you know, every time you think about the stories, you kind of think about something before. I was just thinking about these cloaks. You know, they put their cloaks on the back of the donkey, and then they put their cloaks on the ground for Jesus to walk on. And there's another little picture if you want it. 
We've thought about the, the, the colt, the baby donkey, being called and used and asked by Jesus to go and do something new and frightening and different, but you can do it if Jesus is on your back or Jesus is with you. You know, don't imagine that you're too young or too new a Christian to go into some new uncharted territory that he might send you to, because if he calls you and he's with you, if he says the Lord needs you, and he's going to be the one not just riding on your back, but accompanying you, then you will fulfill the purpose for which he sends you. But let's get back to the cloaks. Cloaks were extremely valuable. Even the poorest of the poor would have a cloak. Why? Because in a Middle Eastern climate where it's really, really hot during the day, you don't need a cloak. But when it's really, really cold at night because there's no cloud cover and the heat flies off, in the winter, uh, from spring, uh, sorry, autumn right through to spring, you need a layer. And so a person's cloak, if they own nothing else, was really valuable. That's why in the Old Testament law, there is specific provision for uh, if you borrow someone's cloak, make sure they get it back. <laughs> make sure they get it back before sundown. Make sure that you don't deprive someone of what is a vital piece of covering. And so a cloak was a valuable thing if you were poor. It gave you warmth and it gave you protection. But not only that, a cloak was a covering. And I, I just like the imagery, and I don't know whether I'm being true to the passage here or not, or just kind of over-reading it, so just bear with me and forgive me if I am. But I like the image that people, Jesus' disciples, were taking off their cloaks, because cloaks are not just about warmth and protection. Cloaks, let's face it, are also about concealment. <laughs> you can hide a lot under a cloak. And these people were taking off their cloaks, and they were putting them down on the ground as a sign of Jesus, you're welcome. You're welcome. As a sign of offering the most valuable thing that they had, of taking off the thing that was, well, that was important and necessary and valuable, but also probably for us, we might see that with cloaks, there's a, there's a concealment and I just was playing with that idea that actually what is the gospel about? It's about taking off the cloak. <laughs> it's about taking off the garment of concealment. And it's about inviting Jesus in. It's about inviting Jesus in. And in this instance, they were inviting Jesus into Jerusalem. There were plenty of people who did not want Jesus in Jerusalem, but his disciples wanted Jesus in. John's gospel contains the little line, he came to that which was his own, but his own would not receive him. Here is Jesus coming to that which is his own, the place where God is meant to dwell. And there were some people who would take off their cloaks, take off and give in his service the most valuable thing, the thing that they would otherwise use to protect themselves from people from the environment and from intrusion. And they would say, Jesus, come on in. The disciples' activity seemed somewhat spontaneous. Did Jesus tell them what to do or did they just cotton on pretty quickly? How did this 
thing gather momentum that suddenly Zechariah 9.9 is, is being unfolded. And this was a moment of the disciples welcoming Jesus prophetically as well. And our presence here as a church in Glasgow city centre is part of our prophetic declaration and our proclamation. I've said on more than one occasion before that there's probably, you know, it would suit the transport needs of the city centre much better if this church wasn't blocking West George Street. But here it is. Here it is. And I'm sure there's lots of businesses would love to turn it into an, a Starbucks or an Apple store or, or something else. There's lots of people who would give their eye teeth, but no, it belongs to Jesus. <laughs> it belongs to Jesus. Because we as a people, not just this building, or it continues, and the building itself continues to be a, a proclamation. But you see it, the difference between a church as a museum and a church as a proclamation of the gospel is a living, dynamic, worshiping, praying, faith-filled, and believing community. You know, there's lots of fine churches that you can point to and say, ah, yeah, there was a revival there in 1864. It was amazing. But right now, it's a museum piece. Well, it's just a building. And this place may have a fine uh, Christian history in terms of its impact in Glasgow and its ministry to people, but it only continues to be that and do that because of people like you. Because you're being part of the community. You're being here and choosing to be here on the Sundays when you could do other things, when you could say, when you could study or just, you know, take time off or have a long lie or whatever, choosing to be here and affirm the community of God's people in this place is a prophetic declaration. It's a proclamation of the gospel. And finally, and I mean finally this time, I said it once before just to trick you, false hope. It was preparation, prophetic declaration, proclamation, and finally provocation. Provocation. Jesus was under no illusion that acting out Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, in the eyes of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, in the eyes of these twitching, hierarchical Jews who were anxious about their place and position, and this popular Jesus, this rabble-rouser who had far too many followers, wasn't going to come to their attention. And both in earthly terms and in heavenly terms, this is the moment, and I'm sorry if you've heard me say this, but well, I mean, six years, so probably five or six times, but my best analogy, my best analogy for Palm Sunday is uh, if you can imagine the scene before either boxers or wrestlers enter the ring. You know, where the guy comes uh, in the red corner and he's got the red shorts and he's got the red silk dressing gown and the red gloves and he's got his cohort with him. He's got his manager. He's got his trainer. He's got his heavies. He's got whoever else he's got with him in his squad and they are entering into the arena. That's Palm Sunday. Yes, Jesus came gentle and meek and riding on a donkey, but Jesus came into Jerusalem not to bring peace but a sword. 
He did not come in to negotiate with the powers that be and find a way forward. He came in the knowledge that he was chasing down death, that he was taking on Satan, and that he was yielding himself as a sacrifice, a Passover lamb sacrifice, in order that your sin and my sin could be dealt with. And so never think of Palm Sunday as a happy little Sunday school outing. Never think of it as a a lovely little fun celebration day. This is Jesus squaring up to the enemies of God in sin, death, and the devil. In squaring up to them and saying, come and have a go. And the first three days of Jesus' time in Jerusalem would be spent repeatedly, overtly, publicly, emphatically, deliberately squaring up by teaching the people, by provoking the authorities. Everything you read about in the next three days is deliberately designed for Jesus to raise his head above the parapet and say, come on then. Come on then. Until they did and they would. And all of that in order that Jesus could go to a cross with your name on it. In order that Jesus could go into a tomb with your epitaph on it. In order that Jesus could go into the suffering assigned and allotted to you for your sin and your shame and mine as well. All of that in order that Jesus could enter into your death and your suffering in order to bear it for you and to break its power and hold over your future. Jesus came radically, prophetically, emphatically fulfilling Zechariah 9 in an attitude of humility, in an attitude of obedience, in an attitude that was designed to be both a fulfillment of the coming Messiah who would not come to make war against people, but would come to make war against death and against Satan and against every chain that would seek to hold you and me captive. And be under no illusion that if you're living your life for Jesus, then sooner or later you too will provoke and annoy if you're faithful to him. Because our prayer life, our faith, our living for Jesus, our declaration of Him needs to be both a sign of the fruitfulness and the fragrance of Jesus and also a goad and a provocation because there are and will be those who do not like who we are and what we stand for. And that's okay that's okay. And so Palm Sunday is a beautiful celebration of the hopes and expectations of a people who imagined that it was just a short step from here to Jesus being enthroned as Messiah. How wrong they were. But in Jesus' mind, this was the way it had to be. 
And in the same way as when we become Christians and we maybe imagine that our journey will be easy and sweet, and then we swiftly discover that it involves us also taking up a cross and following Him. We discover that there is a promised outcome, that there is a promised conclusion, that there is a grand finale and a celebration of the victory of Jesus, of the emptiness of the tomb. But the road will lead us, not swiftly and easily, from faith and celebration to an easy victory. But we're called to a journey that will be difficult, demanding, and painful. We're called to a journey that will call us to keep believing even when it doesn't look like we're on the victory side. But know that you are. Know that you are. Know that of all the other voices and isms and ologies, of all the other philosophies and belief systems and things that have come and gone, it's the gospel of Jesus that has stood the test of time and endured and will continue to do so. Let's pray together.